This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Valentine's Day, just a couple of weeks away, and it is one of the biggest days of the year for marriage proposals, as well as special gifts for significant others. For many people, that means purchasing a diamond ring or earrings or a necklace. These days, the four C's, cut, color, clarity, and carrot weights, are also being joined by an O, as in terms of origin. Millennials, in particular, are more interested in diamonds that are ethically sourced and making sure that they are not buying blood diamonds used to fund insurgencies, warlords, or wars in diamond-rich countries. This may explain the increase in lab-created diamonds, which is growing in popularity and giving bigger companies a run for their money. So where is the diamond industry headed right now? We are joined on the phone by Ann Bowers, who's an associate professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto's Rodman School of Management. Also uh, joining us on the phone right now is Ajay Anand, who is a founder of Rare Carrot, which is referred to as the kayak.com of the diamond industry. He is uh, also uh, founder of enterprise software company Sysmap, as well as a Wharton alum. And also joining us is Patricia Seerud, who is a program development manager for minerals, materials, and society at the University of Delaware. And Ajay, Patricia, thank you all for your time. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you all. And this would seem to be a a fairly significant shift for some of these companies because now I would think that the data of where they are getting these diamonds becomes that much more important. Well, I think so. I think it's interesting. So my data have all been on looking at the resale market, which lets me see what consumers know after they've had the rings for a while. And historically, consumers haven't really had that much of an awareness. They may have awareness at the time, but sort of anything about the ring is what they experience in a jewelry store. But there's so much more information available to them now, both because companies are sharing information about uh, ethical information, but also because of what's available on the internet. Buying guides, how do you know what the right thing to get is, chat boards about what's the right size of diamonds and things like that. And also, a big change Changes from De Beers, which has not only gotten into synthetic diamonds, but has also launched its own diamond repurchase uh, business, suggesting that we're trying to change, they're trying to change how people are thinking about diamonds. Ajay, are you seeing that yourself? Um, We are. So uh, I think uh, one of the things you mentioned was origin, and um, we were just discussing how De Beers is starting to track origin. We've been partnered now for two years with a company called Everledger. Everledger has been placing diamond uh, origin and supply chain information on on the blockchain for quite some time now. And we we came out with a report with them uh, in August of this year where consumers can input the GIA number, which is the Gemological Institute of America. It's the unique identifying number of a diamond. And if we're able to query their blockchain and find history uh, information for that diamond, we can reflect that to the consumer. So there's definitely growing... Uh, awareness across uh, the consumer base and, and demand for that kind of information as well. Patricia, what about the supply chain in this industry? Because you're talking about a, a lengthy process in terms of the mining, wherever the location may be, to get it to market at some point around the world. Well, you know, it's interesting, Dan, um, you know, what you said, you know, still talking about blood diamonds. And everyone talks about what hasn't or isn't being done in the artisanal or small-scale mining sector, which frankly only comprises about 15% of the diamond supply chain. 
And to clarify, artisanal and small-scale mining does not mean illicit or illegal mining. But very little is actually said about what the industry is doing to address the complex supply chain issues. Um, for example, and, and consumers are, more, are becoming more familiar with the Kimberley process, which was mandated by the United Nations and created to stop the flow of rough diamonds from being used to fund conflict. And for all intents and purposes, it has been extremely successful, and currently about 99% of all diamonds are conflict-free. But keep in mind that the United States and European Union have conflict mineral legislation stating that publicly traded companies must have transparent supply chains. Um, it applies to certain minerals, the three T's, tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold, all of which are used extensively throughout the electronics industries. However, the largest publicly traded and largest privately held jewelry and diamond companies are also applying these uh, similar supply chain standards to the diamond and colored gemstone supply chains. So, for example, the industry created Responsible Jewelry Council and its voluntary chain of custody standards allow the industry to have a system to address non-legislated sectors of the jewelry supply chain like diamonds and colored gemstones. Ajay, where do you think the, the industry is headed right now? And obviously you have a, a, a unique perspective uh, on this right now because uh, of, of some of the changes, some of the mindset changes of consumers. So uh, I think I have a unique background in the industry that I'm, I'm not coming from the industry. I'm coming from the perspective of one of the largest consumer sets, which is, you know, the average guy buying an engagement ring. That's what I was two and a half years ago. And for me, I found, and this is not getting at the nuances of kind of the modern developments around supply chain, but it's just an incredibly expensive purchase and an incredibly complex product that you know nothing about. And so for me, um, tackling it from a consumer product, consumer internet company standpoint, the idea is around empowering consumers to make smart decisions. And so we have pushed the bar quite far over the last two years in using artificial intelligence, machine learning. We have machine vision where we can look at diamonds and start classifying them you know, in ways that even the GIA is not. And the whole uh, point of all that is to help empower consumers to make intelligent decisions um, around their purchase. And part of that is obviously around supply chain and ethical sourcing. But this is a trend we see across other spaces. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are joined on the phone by Ann Bowers of the University of Toronto, Ajay Anand, who is the founder of Rare Carrot, and also Patricia Sirud of the University of Delaware. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. And how do you see the, the industry being changed by some of these, uh, these uh, impacts going on? Well, one of the things that I've always thought was very interesting about the diamond engagement ring is that from a consumer standpoint, it's actually very, very hard to tell what a diamond is. You see something on someone's finger, and it looks sparkly, and it looks big, and it looks, you know, you can discern a shape, but you can't tell... The, by the naked eye, a lot about the diamonds. Right. And this means that the purchase experience is in some sense somewhat of a mystery because 
I look on it and I don't know, right? If I look around the, the, at my students, if I look around in, in the average day, I see all of these diamonds and I can't tell, is this a conflict diamond? Is this an ethical diamond? Right. Is this um, a diamond from a divorce, right? So there's a, a I've done some research that so really? people are very, very worried that they're going to get a ring from a failed relationship and this huh. is somehow how doom their future. Um, by this sort of tainted ring or that somebody, it, it's from somebody who died. And all of these things, yet you can't see it. Um, and so there's sort of this enduring, uh, the, the visibility of it versus what people actually buy in the marketplace right. um, is really has, uh, struck to me. And what I'm seeing uh, now sort of as I look over this is an interesting trend where as we see more Instagram, you see the photo of the ring and all this kind of thing sure. that it um, hasn't really resolved this conflict between I can't see what it is, but yet I re- it really matters to me uh, what it is. And this creates, uh, from my perspective, interesting opportunities for businesses. I would think that that also, uh, Ajay, there's a, an element of this uh, in terms of the mindset of, of the of the person that's buying now. Maybe it's the millennial consumer in comparison to the baby boomer that may be different now. As Anne just laid out, the the general understanding of all of these aspects of diamonds that's not the norm for the average consumer to begin with. Correct. And that's kind of what I was alluding to is that, you know, these consumer facing tools have taken over all industries, not just large purchases like homes and cars. But, you know, we don't we being millennials don't buy shampoo without reading the reviews and see if it's rated four stars on Amazon. So consumers are just much more empowered than than previous generations. And it's tipped the balance in an industry that's historically favored the jeweler who is, you know, omniscient and, and there's huge information asymmetry between the two that, that, that gap is narrowing. What Patricia, what is the, the level of mining that we still see going on around the world in comparison to say 20 to 30 years ago? What, what, what is the industry looking at right now? Is still the mining uh, as prevalent as it was? Um. Uh, well, the the actual, you know, mining anything, um, and it's a big concern, you know, globally, is that, you know, mines are finite. Um, and the perspective for a number of, uh, particularly with the large-scale mines and mining, is that, you know, they're they're all going to be mined out eventually at some point in time. Right. Um, you know, in the in the conceivably in this foreseeable future, but that doesn't mean they're they're not also finding other, um, you know, new sources of gemstones and and diamonds globally. But it goes to what Anne mentioned of the value of you know the diamonds that have already been mined aren't lost. You know, they're they're out there uh, in the market and uh, circulating, which is. Um, makes it even more interesting that there are so many initiatives throughout the diamond supply chain that are embracing blockchain technology, um, such as De Beers has a blockchain platform called Tracer. The Gemological Institute of America has something called Mind to Market. Both of these track rough diamonds from mine to consumer um, or mine to the customer, but also companies um, such as uh, uh, there's a blockchain collaboration between IBM and um, others, including Berkshire Hathaway's Richline Group called Trust Chain, that's tracking diamonds, precious metals, and jewelry throughout all stages of the global supply chain, from you know mine and source 
uh, to the retailer. And and also, you know, working with Everledger, which is becoming a leader in the jewelry supply chain for supplying blockchain technology. So you're finding more and more initiatives um, globally from public and privately held companies to be able to track the diamonds, you know, once they're in the supply chain. So it's not only rough, but, you know, as jewelry comes more and more into the supply chain and on the blockchain, companies can track them. People can see the story, see the history, see the transparency, and know more about their diamonds. And you're seeing the industry embrace this technology more and more. And your thoughts? Uh, so I definitely agree with that. So there's a lot of data that shows that diamond prices uh, historically are appreciating. What's interesting from the consumer standpoint is, uh, however, the number of years that it actually takes that if you were to sell your diamond today, you'd be able to recover the price that you paid when you bought it. And surprisingly, so if you buy a diamond today, um, one of the great things that happens to, to many people who buy diamonds is, one, they get an insurance uh, appraisal, and that appraisal is typically wildly high higher than what they actually paid for it. Um, but then if they go to try to sell it, uh, historically, they've only been able to recoup about 20% of that price. Um, and so even though diamonds are uh, appreciating over time, it seems like the average consumer, you're going to have to hold that diamond for about 30 years before you're going to get back what you paid for it in the resale market. Ajay, your thoughts? Uh, around resale. Yes. Um, we, well, they don't have too much insight to add to that. I, okay. One thing that's interesting, though, and and my question on that was was that considering inflation, considering, or, or is it just to get the raw amount of dollars you spent on the diamond back thirty years? Yeah, so that's just looking at a, a two per, a, a sort of a two percent price growth per year. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the mar- diamond market is historically there hasn't been that much of a secondary market. So you buy them, and that's in part because we attach this enduring value to diamonds, right? And the right. idea yeah. of purchasing somebody's used diamond makes people very uncomfortable. Um, and so uh, definitely demand, uh, as Patricia said, demand is growing. Demand actually is out stripping supply, particularly as globally people who hadn't worn engagement rings in the past are now very interested. So my understanding is, and uh, Ajay, you would have more uh, insight than I would on this, is that there's incredible demand, uh, I'm understanding, from India and China about wearing engagement rings and buying diamonds uh, as well. So the the primary market is very, very strong. Ajay? Yeah, we see that as well. And I think people always uh, point very quickly to trends of declining marriage rates. But my sense, having been in the market for a couple of years, is that this is going to be an enduring tradition. And we haven't really talked about lab-grown and synthetic diamonds, which is an interesting uh, avenue that uh, it's probably the most discussed topic within the industry. But, you know, now De Beers, as I think Patricia mentioned earlier and mentioned earlier, uh, is getting into the game. Long story short, I kind of see it from a sociological perspective. It is a commitment that, you know, generally uh, one person is making to another. And, right. and that requires a sacrifice, and the sacrifice in our society is financial. So when we see the prices of synthetic diamonds coming down as quickly as they are, there was a Bain report that said it's come down 10x. I think the span was less than 10 years in terms of manufacturing costs. And that's kind of what we're seeing on, on the market as well. Well, how, mu- um, how, mu- how much are we starting to see, Ajay, the, the lab-created diamonds, the synthetic diamonds, 
really on the marketplace? What's the percentage in comparison to to traditional diamonds uh, right now? Uh, low single digits is is our best estimate. Right. Eight four That's still in the margin. Eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio one thirty two or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney L O N E Y twenty one. Ajay, do you expect that that those numbers though will increase? To, to a degree, and I don't know how much the, the expectation would be that we would see synthetic diamonds at fifteen percent or twenty percent. Is that something that's even realistic? I've been bearish, just simply because of decreasing manufacturing costs, which is just going to increase competition on the supply side and going to drive prices down. And particularly, I divide the market into engagement and non-engagement. My gut feel, because of what I explained around the financial sacrifice, that you know is the whole point of the tradition. I don't see it supplanting engagement in in the near term or even less so in the long term. But for jewelry, I think it's very interesting. And I think that everybody's taking it very seriously at this point. And your thoughts? So I would actually agree with that. I ran a bunch of experiments where I asked people uh, essentially uh, what Ajay was talking about, uh, which is uh, this sentiment around marriage. And basically, I get told them either, you know, this is a ring from a store or this is a ring uh, from a divorce. And then I ask them, you know, well, how likely is uh, the person, John, uh, to tell his wife where he got the ring? Uh, and, you know, if it was divorce, absolutely not clear, but uh, store very clear that he would tell them, how likely is she going to tell her friends? You know, if it was from a divorce ring, not going to tell the friends. If it was from a uh, store, very likely to tell her friends. Um, and would she exchange it for a store ring? And um, what that says to me is this narrative, this experience, and what's going on in the exchange and the symbolic aspect of that is exceedingly strong. And even though we may know that, yes, you want to get sort of a good deal on it, there's still something socially that feels a little awkward about saying, you know, honey, I love you tremendously. I got this really excellent uh, extreme bargain basement uh, synthetic <laughs> diamond. Yeah. It's just like real um, like our love, which is also apparently synthetic, right? So it's harder to do that. So I would uh, exactly agree. If I were to make a guess, um, which I don't normally do, but if I were to make a guess, I would say synthetic jewelry uh, or diamonds, very, very uh, huge potential in uh, regular jewelry. But engagement rings, I, I think it would be hard to overcome in the short term that sentiment. Patricia, your thoughts? Well, you know, it's interesting that there is, um, you know, kind of so much, uh, you know, brouhaha and explosion about this discussion of synthetic versus natural diamonds, because this is an issue, the synthetic colored gemstones uh, versus natural colored gemstones that the colored gemstone industry has been dealing with for well over 100 years. Um, they were synthesizing um, synthetic rubies and sapphires uh, at the turn of the last century. And as a matter of fact, today, synthetic corundums or your synthetic sapphires and rubies and synthetic spinels are the stones that are used in class rings and kind of very low-end jewelry. So it's a, uh, the, the concept of a synthetic gemstone has been out there for, you know, over 100 years. Um, it's new to diamonds, which, of course, and diamonds have such a strong connection to uh, emotion and long-term commitment uh, in our society, increasingly globally, as the other two um, uh, 
uh, commentators have said, so that it's, you know, there is there is a lot of um, interest in trying to understand, you know, the, the value of synthetic diamonds versus natural diamonds. But I agree with both of the other speakers, absolutely. Synthetic diamonds are, they are the same material. You know, they have the same chemical, physical, and optical properties as a natural diamond. Um, but they're, they're two different products. They're going to be uh, utilized in certain jewelry, and there's just uh, there's going to be a market for people who want the allure of a natural, you know, uh, material that was created in the earth. And you know, that's I don't see that changing. So, and is this also in part an industry that's kind of adjusting to a degree to the to the needs of the consumer? And obviously, most businesses do. But when you think about uh, the the diamond industry and the expectations that some people have of having a, a an actual out of the ground diamond uh, to put on their finger for their engagement. That, that is a standard that I think continues for a long period of time. But when you're talking about other pieces of jewelry, maybe that mindset is a little bit different. You know, I, I think that's probably true. One of the things that I've known from my interviews with a variety of jewelers is that they are very, uh, they want to be open. They want to know what kind of information they, they should share. But at the same time, you know, it, it, their incentive is to, to sell rings and to get you happy uh, and to buy. So my, my sense, and again, Jay would have much more uh, insight into this, um, is that uh, they are becoming more and more open. Um, but like anything, it's hesitant because if you begin suddenly selling these synthetic diamonds um, that are much less expensive, well, what does that say about the real diamonds that you've historically been selling as well? Ajay? I think everybody's, um, you know, I've just, my, my, my pulse on the industry is people are <clears throat> warming to it. I think Signet's last few earnings calls have been interesting in the way that they seem to have repositioned themselves. I saw Blue Nile making, Blue Nile is the largest, uh, for context, Signet is the largest, I think, jewelry company in the world, uh, owns sales, Kane Jared's. And then Blue Nile is the largest online retailer in the world. Both of them have made kind of interesting statements that have turned from we're not really going to consider it to we're going to see what the consumer says, which seems to be a warming across the board. But it's exactly this cannibalization problem of their existing business that I think that, you know, the, the existing retailer set is concerned about. So there's many new interesting you know, lab-grown only brands that are trying to be that are being created at the moment. I think Diamond Foundries, the one that's been backed by you know, Leo DiCaprio, famously, and and they're making a lot of noise. And I'm not sure if the old guard is going to be the one to capture that, or whether they'll be too slow to act on it, and whether there'll be a new set of companies that take that opportunity. Great having you all with us today. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Ajay. Patricia. Thank you as well. All the best. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all. Ann Bowers from uh, the University of Toronto, Ajay Anan, who is uh, the founder of Rare Carrot and also of enterprise software company Sysmap, and also uh, Patricia Seerud uh, at the University of Delaware. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.